episode 128, Enabling Pharmaceutical Innovation. Today, I speak with Mike Rhea from Idea Pharma. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Innovation is more than just an epiphany. And it's more than the shiny new invention. It's really not innovation unless you manage to get your newly created thing, phenomenon, to return value to your organization. You need an understood way to deliver value. That's the minimum requirement for innovation. Today, I speak with Mike Rhea from Idea Pharma about enabling pharmaceutical innovation. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Mike. Hey, Stacy. Thanks for having me. Like you, my friend, one of my very favorite books slash movies is A Princess Bride, which is mm -hmm. why I so very much enjoyed something you wrote recently in an article about innovation. You quoted one of the best lines in A Princess Bride. One of the characters says, you keep using that word. I'm not sure it means what you think it means. Yes, I did. And the, the reason I did around innovation was that I just keep hearing it. I mean, it's become the buzzword du jour. It's a little bit like the patient two years ago and so forth. So, And everyone's using it, but actually the people who are using it are using it interchangeably with creativity or invention. They're not using it in its actual sense, which is you know what you bring to, to market, what you bring to patients. So I was keen in that presentation to make sure that uh, people who keep using the word innovation should know what it means rather than uh, using it in the wrong place. You are suggesting that the word innovation refers to, you said, what you bring to market. Yeah, I think by definition, I think invention is, is kind of what you come up with. In innovation is something that makes it through additional hurdles and actually starts to add value either to you as a, as a provider or to someone else. And that's the textbook definition of, of innovation. And it matters to me in this space because if we keep focusing on all the cool, clever things and we forget that our job is to get things to market and get them to people in a way that they make a difference, then we may be doing ourselves a disservice. So you're basically subsuming inside the word innovation, the whole kind of supply chain or value chain, you know, the whole thing from let's come up with something new to, all right, now it's in the hands of customers who are getting value from it and we are being remunerated. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's, you know, and we tend to think it's the boring bit, right? Uh, the, the creative light bulb moment at the beginning was the key thing but i think the most important thing is that we you know we made a difference uh, you know anything no no medicine is less useful than one that doesn't make it to patients we've got unfortunately our cutting room floor is is filled with a lot of those great ideas let's talk about pharma innovation as you've said it's not just stamping out pills anymore what are you most excited about that pharma has been innovating in the truest sense of the word well, I think, you know, I mean, 2016 was an interesting year that we saw for the first time more biologics approved than small molecules. First year ever that's, that's occurred. We're also seeing more rare and orphan designations uh, approved. 
But actually, that's only scratching the surface of you know what we began about 10 years ago. I think the interesting things now are different modalities, different med tech devices. We're seeing software approved now that that's making a difference. And I think if you look at areas like electroceuticals, where we're going to be able to use electrical stimulation to make a difference, we're going to be able to use interventional AI to make a difference. And then you get into the kind of more traditional, if you like, the cell therapies, gene therapies that are on their way to, to changing paradigms within our industry. Biosensors, ways of predicting and preventing disease as well. So, you know, we've got so many sources of possibility entering the space that I think that those approaches that are only about stamping out pills and, and putting them in bottles, you know, we can't think like that anymore. I'm going to circle back to your list of things and ask you for examples of what you're talking about. Mm. Well, you started out talking about med tech devices. What do you mean ex- by that? Like, what's an example or explain that a little bit better? I mean, I think we're all familiar with devices like inhalers, right, where we've just become so accustomed to that being a delivery mechanism. And you think, well, that feels slightly 1970s, 1960s versus the kind of world where we're used to iPhones and so forth. Well, of course, the that device industry has grown up and there are artificial pancreases providing you know, uh, solutions for patients now. We used to cardiovascular implementation of mechanical devices. Those things are getting smarter. So I think anything that's about augmentation or about we've got EEG devices now that can provide a kind of realistic brain reading that might be able to preempt epileptic seizures. A lot of these devices are, you know, they don't fall into easy categories anymore. It's not just an inhaler anymore, but it's, it's, it's something much more than that. It's something that could actually change the outcome for patients. So I get the pharma connection to inhalers. And in fact, I interviewed on the show probably a year and a half ago at this point, someone from Propeller Health. And what Propeller Health does is it's kind of a smart inhaler. Pharmaceutical device is at the end of the inhaler, just like it always has been. But when the patient uses the device, it tracks, geolocates them. It it knows where they are and it knows how much medicine they took and what the frequency is and the time of day, which enables the provider to try to figure out patterns. So I get how that gets smart. Like, for example, the EEG or the artificial pancreas, are those used to make the delivery of pharma smarter or more robust in some fashion, or are they kind of products unto themselves? So I think a little bit of both, right? So if if you take your example forward and you, let's say that you looked at the wearable EEG that could give you preemption notice of seizure and suddenly you construct a feedback loop where you and the device both become smarter about the way that your seizure pattern shows itself, you may well then discover use a pharmacological intervention to make a difference there but actually the most important thing is the learning loop the feedback loop becomes shorter than the you know once a month that you might see your physician when you might try and remember what happened but actually this becomes about the kind of real world data applied to your individual form of epilepsy and two people are learning then right there's there's you and your physician but there's also the company that amalgamates all of that information it's not to see patterns and them might you know start to see different ways of intervening. So I think that world is one where the innovation 
might start us down a path of learning rather than telling, which has been the, you know, the industry's old way of launching something and telling everyone it's perfect. We may well get comfortable with, you know, launching things that are only going to get smarter as they, as they go. I have a bunch of questions to ask you about that, but I'm going to stick a pin in them and, and save them for a moment because I got to get through your other list. I try sure. not to be overly ADD during these conversations. <laughs> <laughs> so electroceuticals, I love that word, but what does it mean? Currently, it's a hypothesis, which is that if you were able to, instead of pharmacologically make a difference to firing patterns in the brain, which is currently the method that we're using, if you were able to do that electronically, that you know you might well have a non-interventional uh, approach to treating disorders that are you know, often disorders of firing, like Parkinson's or other diseases. I think we're putting the words, we're putting that kind of ending pseudical on it, but of course it's using electricity in, in smart ways. How about interventional AI? We have to be careful about I always think we've got to be careful about the word artificial in there because there is an intelligence that isn't, you know, artificial. You know, where it's augmented intelligence in many ways, which is the AI that I prefer. Got to think that the world has progressed so much in that space in the last five years that if you project forward to, you know, not not quite all of the sci-fi projections, but towards our ability to spot patterns and make a difference and learn quickly, which is where AI is great, and suddenly we can come up with solutions you think about say predict predictive text now versus 10 years ago uh, and how much ai is understanding humans uh, speech recognition you know which was useless 20 years ago is now suddenly you know reliable enough to using cars and other things so you've got, you've got to project forward to a time when this becomes interesting the interesting thing for me is how you make any money out of any of that because if you can't make money out of it, it's very difficult to bring it to market. So the, the kind of commercial models, I think, are also part of that uh, innovation process. Yeah, and I definitely want to get to that. And exactly what you just said has been a point of note, because the model that pharma currently uses, that every product must have a profit, you know, as you start getting into these other areas of innovation, that model starts to become less relevant. In other words, you're stamping out pills is a very incrementally, you know, you, you, you figure it out, you get the intellectual property, you get the patent, and then you're printing money for however long you can manage to <laughs> defend <Yeah>. that patent. <laughs> but that's not always the way that it rolls with other types of you know, electroceuticals, for example, or or this interventional AI. How do you see pharma threading that needle? Uh, how do I, I see them doing it very badly at the moment? Uh, I see them <laughs> p p potentially doing it very well. Which What's your is, aspiration, think, Mike? Yeah, because yeah, I think you're right. You know, if you look at uh, some of the most famous companies in the tech space at the moment or social media space, for example, you know, they're not making profits, but they are huge market caps. So they're funding their innovation in ways that the pharmaceutical industry isn't yet comfortable with. And if you compare, you've got something like Apple that clearly it has a very profitable product. We all understand that model where you knock out, you know, where you put out an iPhone and people are comfortable to pay for it. And then everyone, you know, that's more pharmaceutical. But how do you look at someone like Google, which, you know, is, is funded by advertising revenue mostly, but a lot of its innovation 
is funded with the view that it doesn't have to make money when it launches. So it, it can launch products that don't have to make a return on their investment because they may pay off in five or 10 years time. And some of them are about learning. Some of them are about, you know, the, the development of artificial intelligence at Google. I'd be interested in pharma and biotech taking that kind of a view, which is, you know, what if we launched something and it became the platform? You know, what if we became the Uber of our space, for example? And again, you know, there's a company not making a profit, but, you know, doing very well in most other regards with a view that it becomes the platform and then becomes profitable. And then, you know, so I think a lot of those approaches to market are interesting as you get into areas like gene editing, uh, cell therapy, where the IP that you just mentioned that protects you for 10 years of stamping out pills may not be straightforward. It may not be easy. And actually, you may even need to think about uh, not having IP in some of the areas that you're involved with. But then you look at something like Tesla, where, where you know, and Elon Musk famously gave away the patents to uh, his technologies and said, "Look, come on, you know, take what you want," because actually the value of Tesla isn't in the patents. You know, and I, that, that's where I think I'd be interested in pharma exploring alternatives to its traditional model. That's kind of a long game, and you know, one thing that is a consistent force multiplier at pharma companies is how we're doing this quarter, which has kind of prevented some other programs from from seeing the light of day around, you know, collaboration or building relationships or those those programs always struggle at pharma companies. We've got it the wrong way around. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you look at I mean most companies that have a successful product, most of the budget goes into selling that successful product. So Actually, the parallel to Apple is very interesting that uh, you know Apple's become a kind of iPhone defense company. It's it's a lot about selling an iPhone now. And the behaviors that got them to the iPhone in the first place are not as evident today because they're mostly uh, trying to you know maintain the success uh, and the level of profit. Actually, a lot of pharma companies behave the same way. So as soon as they have their blockbuster, the budgets go to that, whereas actually the behaviors that got them to the blockbuster in the first place are, are not being replicated. So you're right. I think the um, you know pipelines often get uh, subjected to attrition because of business reasons, business plan reasons. Whereas a little bit more imagination about how you fund early phase development could really change things. And that sales based approach, you know, how are we doing this quarter? That's true at large pharma companies. I think at, at smaller pharma companies, of course, where they're launching less and they have less on the market. That market cap is typically their way of funding things. And you look at, say, the growth of Allegan in recent years, it hasn't been built on selling more drugs. It's been built on the creation of value through other means, which enables them to do a whole lot more than they could otherwise. Let's talk about that creating value based on other means, because as you referred to earlier, there's other ways to innovate besides product innovation. What are your thoughts there? If you were an external observer, and I've heard many from other industries look at pharma and say, well, where are the people doing the contracting? And not just, you know, talking to a local hospital about, you know, buying six months or a year's worth of drug, but uh, kind of value-based contracting, getting paid only if the drug works, that kind of that kind of thing. And clearly we're, we're, we're putting our toe in the water in many instances now, but, you know, who's gone all in on that? And the, 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 the cases that the industry cites of, you know, Entresto, the heart failure drug. Well, you know, again, I'd call that dabbling. It wasn't wasn't an all-in commitment. We've launched a cure recently for hepatitis C, 
but we're still getting paid by the pill for the cure. So the, the, there are things that I wonder about that we could be trying harder, like closing the loop on what payers and patients and physicians and pharmaceutical companies all want, which may be a, a different model about how we take risks. So does this product work in this patient? Who is responsible for paying for or underwriting that risk that this drug doesn't work in this patient? Currently, it's a healthcare system. So, you know, and the pharmaceutical company that puts the pills in the bottle doesn't really have any responsibility for that patient beyond putting the, the bottle on the shelf at the pharmacy. So, you know, I, I think there are so many ways that um, we could begin to think about different business relationships with our customers that we're used to in most other industries. Again, talk about cell phones and so forth. If this was all the case that we had to pay for our device and then go and find a plan, go and do all the different things, people, you know, individually, people have found a way to bundle those up so it all gets easy. You know, it's still not easy, but, you know, it gets a lot easier than it used to be. While, you know, patients are stuck in this kind of vortex of, you know, finding someone to prescribe the drug, finding, finding somewhere to buy it, you know, and then how much is the copay, how much are they paying to the insurance company? None of this is easy. And then you get to even things like joining a clinical study. How easy is it to, to navigate clinicaltrials.gov and find your way to a clinical uh, trial? So I think there's a lot of things where other industries could teach us more about how to think about our relationships with our customers. What I think is interesting about what you just said is when most people think about risk-based contracting or innovative contracting, they, they think about it from a fiduciary standpoint, let's just say. What you're saying might be a competitive advantage, actually, or might be a way to establish value in the marketplace is to go one step further and to say, all right, instead of a pharmaceutical product being an entity unto itself, that the pharmaceutical product is bundled together with, you know, let's just say medical services. So the, the patient is purchasing the whole kit, if you will, <laughs> as opposed to just one piece of it. Well, if you think about, I mean, parallels like, say, Rolls-Royce engines, a few years back decided that it didn't want to sell engines to airlines, it wanted to change its model. So it decided to sell, and the phrase was power by the hour. So it gets re, it gets paid by the airline companies for providing thrust to airlines. And what that did was to change the whole paradigm. So suddenly the onboard sensors for how the engines were performing was now Rolls-Royce's Rolls responsibility. Getting parts to broken engines, suddenly Rolls-Royce's responsibility. All of the, the financial modeling that goes into that, Rolls-Royce's responsibility. Now you think, well, where where is that parallel in pharmaceuticals where all of that uh, understanding of how well the drug is working, where it's working, whether it's providing value, taking care of a problem if there is one, you know, we haven't gone in any of those steps uh, beyond really where we were. And I think that's an interesting analog to, to, to look at and say, well, if we could do that 20 years ago in the airline industry, where do we even begin to think about you know, technologies like Proteus, the, the, the kind of swallowable device that tells you where the drug is in the body or, or, or whatever, and how we think about that whole 360-degree model of value to our customer and making life easier for them. You know, that, that's why I think we've got a ways to go. Is because It's not just imagination, but actually there are already other people doing, you know, some much more interesting things than we are. How do payers fit into that? If we're going to in some way integrate 
pharmaceutical interventions inside of the larger, the whole care pathway. Payers sit sort of outside of that. How do you see them? Are they a part of the value chain which is created? Or yeah. I think they have to be. And if you think about sources of insight into uh, you know, how our drugs are performing, either they're incentivized to lower costs for themselves or to increase revenue to themselves. You know, those are not necessarily the same thing. Payers, if you think about a kind of European model, for example, traditionally lowering cost is uh, to the system as a driver. It isn't always directly the track into the way the U.S. behaves, and therefore the U.S. tends to pay more for its medicine. So I think the payers have to be, but they're, they're not just simply motivated by price. It might be predictability. It might be about the, you know, all, all kinds of things. We've you know, had one conversation with a payer recently where he would pay more for an approach that we looked at than we expected simply because of the ability to almost fix his costs within a therapeutic area for two years so he'd know exactly what he was going to pay. That, to him, was worth more than the variation that he currently sees and the negotiation that goes into that. It was known that one therapeutic area, at least, had its cost taken care of for two years. And you think about the way, say, you know, again, with airlines, you know, they buy fuel a year or two years in advance, not so that it's cheaper necessarily, but so that they know what their costs are going to be. So I think there are drivers of behavior at the payer level that are not simply, you know, reduction in cost that we need to understand. And they're clearly here, especially in the US, they're a critical player. In Europe, they have the ultimate veto of saying, well, the UK or Germany or France or Spain may not use your product because we haven't agreed that it's cost effective yet. So I think finding ways over that hurdle is, is critical. Why should pharma be thinking in this regard? I mean, you know, nothing for nothing. They've got a long and very successful history of stamping out pills. You know, is value-based care or the, you know, advent of, of macra in this country, is that a big enough driver or is it a lack of pipeline, for example, you know, that, that is making pharma stray? What is the root cause of that's leading to the necessity that pharma is innovative? I mean, that's a really good question. And it's, and it's a really important challenge for all of this, uh, all of this kind of talk which is what's the worst that could happen if we continue down the path that we're going down. I think the reality is that you know some companies are still doing very well. You look at Gilead had the most successful launch ever in pharmaceuticals in you know in the last couple of years. So the model isn't broken per se, but the spread of that value around the industry is limited these days. We you know had very few approvals last year. You know one of the lowest numbers in in many years. And actually, you know, very few of the top 30 pharma companies had an approval in 2016. You know, across the maybe the top 10, there was uh, five products approved. So, you know, it's it's getting harder. And you think, well, what is it that's making it harder to get further down the track? Some of it is about the, you know, do we have a positive NPV sitting around this program? Or can we make money if we launch this product? So some products are getting stopped not for efficacy reasons, but for business plan reasons. And that is an issue if the reason for that is a lack of imagination on business planning rather than these products could be good if they got there. So I think lots of approaches to commercialization, like how do you commercialize a portfolio instead of individual products? So could we take more to market and find out which ones are commercially successful rather than putting all of our energy into trying to figure it out in advance? What if there are alternative commercial models that could get them to market? 
we might find there's more products making it to phase three, more products making it to approval with different business plans than the way that we're currently doing it. So, you know, I think some of the larger companies could continue to trade on prior successes. But if you looked at 2016, for example, the revenue in 2016 for most of the top 30 pharma companies came from products they launched over five years ago. You know, most of the top 30 are made less than 10% of their revenue in 2016 from products they launched in the last five years. So I think if there is a, a red flag, it's that the business isn't the same as it was, that it's getting harder. You know, we talk about the headline, Gilead launches, but that's not the norm anymore. The norm is for products to launch and then rattle along the floor after after launch because like Praliwent and Repatha, the PCSK9s, they suddenly found the, that the world wasn't interested. So I, you know, I, I think there's enough, there are enough warning signs. And then the most important thing is, are we, do we feel like we're ready for disruption? And I haven't spoken to anyone that doesn't think this is an industry that's ready for disruption. It's just not likely to come from large pharma that, is, that still feels comfortable. Okay. So say that I am working in pharma right now. And I think to myself, I do not want to suffer from a lack of imagination, you know, or have something fail because I'm not clear on how to innovate. I know this is what you do day in and day out, which is to help pharma become more innovative and more successful in their innovation. Is there like three prongs or something or, you know, three rate criticals or some short list of, of things that that people can do which are actionable? As a start, yeah, yeah, you know, we uh, you'd say we this is what we do, but actually, a lot of it boils down to some very straightforward approaches. One is for us critical, which is every asset in your pipeline, you should have five ways to take it to market. Let's say there's a fastest way. Let's say there's a big way. Let's say there's a low risk way. Let's say there's a you know there's a high risk you know unexpected way. Every asset has five. Then suddenly. You know, for every asset, you should be able to see, is there a faster way to do this? For every asset, you should, you should be able to see, is there a bigger way to do this? And that re- reduces that kind of risk of being wrong, if you like, that, uh, you know, we tend to put all of our chips on, you know, black 13 and hope that the roulette wheel spins and it's the one that comes up. But actually, you could end up betting across five different squares to, to find out where the, where, where the product could go. That, that, that's one. Uh, the other is within those options about how to get it to market to look at do we have to make money from our first launch could it be from a life cycle play could it be from a a portfolio approach so there are you know questions that then come down to where is the revenue coming from so every product itself doesn't have to have a positive business case and that itself kills a lot of products today this kind of positive business case per asset Third thing I'd say is that I think that uh, smaller teams where, you know, and more energy put into thinking earlier before the phase two starts, that's where kind of critical mistakes are made, I think, is when the phase two hasn't explored what the product could do if you let it go into where it's most talented. So typically we're presented with products that have done a minimal phase two to get enough of a signal to go to phase three. But the number of things you don't know at the end of phase two, will kill the product. You won't know where else it could have worked, how to build in differentiation, how to build in a value story, because all of those things will then be at risk. 
So, you know, if there was if there was three things I'd say, I thought lots of options, lots of within those options, lots of alternatives, I, I guess, you know, business cases. And then finally, you know, do it early enough that you've got some room for maneuver. Very actionable. I like lists like this. So where can people find more information about Idea Pharma if they are thinking this is something that they are interested in pursuing? I hope they do. So uh, ideapharma.com is the it's usually the best place to go, or I'm on Twitter. I've hijacked the company name, so I am at Idea Farmer on Twitter, <laughs> uh, which not, not everyone loves because sometimes they get personal commentary as well as uh, as well as business advice. So, um, so yeah, you find those two places. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Mike. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website RelentlessHealthValue.com. You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.